All right, and good day. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Merged Worlds, my Dungeons & Dragons story podcast thing that I do every other week. I appreciate you coming by, letting me share my tale with you. This is episode, what, one, episode 73, or is it 173? Lord, I can't even keep track anymore. 73, thank you. 73. Um, so, pretty excited to get into it. Continuing our story from uh, last week, we are in the newest, I almost say season. I've considered going back and renumbering some of the episodes uh, on the podcast, iTunes and Spotify, uh, into different seasons while still keeping an episode 31. Something I've thought about because I kind of feel like this is really the almost the fourth season. Really, the first episode technically covered the first season. It was the Fire Moon years, and it was the search for the weapons up until the point where the final battle where everybody died, and then they came back into the second season. Third season would be everything up until this story. Now, fourth season. Seasons would not be very equal in length. I, uh, I appreciate you coming by and let me share this story either way. Um, if you do have a good time, whether you're watching it today, tomorrow, or... Ten years down the road, it'd be great if you would consider giving the stream a like and the channel. Um, now, last episode, uh, there was some sound issues. People were saying that the mic was cutting in and out a little bit. I've made some changes, and I brought it much closer to myself. Uh, so if there are anything issues where the sound seems to be cutting in and out, please let me know. Uh, tweak that in real time so you're not having to wait on it. Um, so just to kind of do, of course, a real brief recap of where we left off. Hopefully you all heard the last what, two episodes. Um, Seraph's love interest, young lady Dina, family are on the run. She manages to get a letter to Serenity through Mugen, son of old friend Fig in New Gully. And arrived in Serenity providing a note to both Mercy and a note to both Seraph. Uh, one for Seraph was from Dina. Some disagreements on whether they should go after them or not, and then Seraph and Deacon basically snuck out of the city. Uh, Mugen agreed to join them as a guide. The three of them went after Deacon. Heroes of Serenity then decided that it was best to let them go, knowing what they know of the future and that the time had come. Uh, didn't have a lot of choice there, so... Uh, when the other children found out about this, they wrestled with some of their own issues, but then eventually decided that they were going to follow them. There's Deacon is leaving hidden messages that only Petal can... So they decided to head out as well. Um, each of them had a chance to speak with their parents, parental person. Maeve's... Maeve got to speak to... So they kind of chatted about it. Some of them were given some gifts and things before they left. Uh, they were given a backpack of holding. Dungeon Dragons known as the Hayward's Handy Haversack, which holds a lot. Given one of those to help hold supplies and things. And then Princess Artis was sent down into the hidden room underneath Serenity Keep, where Mercy keeps all the magic items, artifacts, and large amount of the wealth they have. Um, letting her go down and take what she felt she needed. 
He did not go with her, did not try to influence what she took or would not, feeling that it would be best her natural instincts and fate, if you will, guide her hand. And the only thing she took was a scepter. It's covered by a blanket back in a corner. She didn't know it was there. For some reason, she felt drawn to it. Picked it up. It was a scepter that many, many, many years earlier in the founding of Serenity was found hidden inside a buried room in nearby quarry. It was very magically protected, and even the mages couldn't break through to find out anything about it, only that it was quite dangerous, quite powerful. So it's been hidden in there ever since. For some reason, artists picked it up and took it. So today, we're going to be bouncing back over and talking the story Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen's book. It'll be over. And I, I think that will happen quite a bit, at least in the early part, until if or when they catch up. But in the beginning part, there's going to be one group, the other group, and they're going to be going through their own things. Um, and so most often, I think, probably an episode will be dedicated to one or the other. It's not to say that might differ if I have to go over into another episode, but I think more often than not, you're going to see probably group one, group two, you know, when or if or whatever happens. Uh, that either makes the merge or go completely different directions. We'll know more about that as the story goes. I'm looking very shrewdly at the camera. If you're listening to this on audio, I'm looking very shrewdly. Is the audio cutting out a few words here and there? Okay. That's the concern that they were talking about last time, and I'm not sure. I haven't made any changes to my audio. Um, but other folks have said the same thing last episode. So I'm starting to work it. It's cutting out a little. Just when you talk softly, it's just a word or two. Okay, so don't talk softly. That's what I just learned. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out what's causing that problem. I uh, probably won't be able to do it in real time. I will try not to talk quietly. I will be very loud and obnoxious today. Okay, talk quietly. Just poke the bear and remind me. Okay. So where we're going to leave off, start off again is with our... Three young lads. It is cutting in and out. Okay, so everybody's noticing it. Well, damn it. I don't know why. I don't know how to fix it. Let's see. What have I got? It's fine. It's fine. Looks okay. I haven't changed anything. But all the time, every time I turn around, it seems to... Uh, Streamlabs seems to change settings that messes everything up, so I apologize. I will do my best to try not to cut in and out today, I promise. I'm filthy. I had cats crawling over me. <laughs> okay, so we start off with uh, Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen all sitting around a fire. Um, they're at a camp. It's later in the evening. Like a noise gate. Gain from your mic might be able to turn up. Noise gate. Right. Let's see if I can find anything in settings. Bear with me a moment. Let's see. Noise gate. Anything called gate anywhere? Microphone. Uh, sync offset. Down mix to mono. Um... On the right one. Bear with me a moment. I guess. 
you're listening on the audio podcast. I promise I'll do my best to see if I can fix this. Let's see properties? Oh, not in there. Let's look at filters. Edit filters. You said gate. Got a noise gate here. Attack time, hold time, and release time. Would I need to move the numbers higher or lower? So that's what it's supposed to be. Well, the mic mic's up all the way. That's <laughs> the problem. There's there's no more volume for the for that. The mic is turned up all the way. Yeah, the mic the mic is on max at this point. I don't have a way higher. Release time higher. Okay, well, let me take a look at that then. Okay, I don't know if that makes any difference or not, but I guess we'll see. Make sure that's stuck because it didn't give me a save button. Okay, yeah. All right, well, I doubled it, so hopefully that sounds better, maybe? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. All right, so, <laughs> Kenny, if you're listening to the audio side of this, apologize for the technical troubleshooting. I will do my best to keep that to a minimum on stream. I just got to notice that the audio's current, audio stream's current bitrate is lower than the recommended bitrate. Well, now I don't even know what that is. Good Lord. Let's see anything. We're just going to have to go ahead as is. So, three men were sitting around the fire, just kind of chilling and relaxing. Uh, it is obviously nighttime at this point. Um, and they're kind of just, there's some talking going on. Seraph is kind of sitting there, and he's more lost in thought. But uh, Well, he's lost in thought, of course. You know. Seraph's always watching. You know what I mean? That's something about Seraph. He's, he understands that leaving Serenity has put him in a very dangerous mode, and that there are things out there that want to kill him. He recognizes that threat. So, you know, he's not blind to that, and is constantly you know, watching for anything, not only for threats against Dean and his friends, but outside threats that could endanger them that are more targeted at him. Deacon and Mugen are kind of sitting over on the other side of the fire where Deacon is teaching Mugen. And that's become a regular in the evenings and even throughout the day as they travel. Um, they Deacon is kind of explaining a lot of things about the outside world to him. Uh, not only telling him their past and the adventures and such that they have, some of the history of Serenity that um, uh, his father... You know what I mean? Wouldn't have known if he hasn't seen them in, in two decades at that point. So telling the history of Serenity, War Against Ormon, Deacon telling the history of Fire Moon, stuff like that, which you can imagine, it's very exciting stories. Mugen had only heard part of these from his dad. So hearing all the rest of it and what had happened since is just big sauce to him. Um, at the same time, he's also going to be, you know, learning other things such as geography, talking about the different kingdoms, you know, showing him the maps and things. Because Fig would have drawn maps and things of that nature. They, they would have had some knowledge. It's not like they've never seen a map before or anything. Um, so showing him maps of what the outside of New Gully looks like and the outside world, trying to give him an idea of where they're going and what they're looking at. 
talking about the different kingdoms and such that now exist and how they're linked together and how they're not. Um, so a lot of geography, political stuff, that type of thing. Also, teaching him the concept of money. Um, trade is not unknown in New Gully, but normally it's trading work for service, work for work, service for service type of thing. I bring you this, you give me food. You know, everybody does their job and contributes to the community. Um, but Fig, being more knowledgeable, would have amassed anything that could have been wealth. And again, being a tinker, could have easily melted down things like gold and silver he found in that area into what would be just plain coins. Um, because he has traded with the centaurs to the north, you remember from very early in the story. Um, but the knowledge they may have to trade or deal with the outside world. And when he sent Moog out, he sent him out with a good-sized bag of coins. Uh, majority gold, but with some silver and copper in there. He tried to explain to Mugen, you know, this is what you use them for, and this is their value. Um, and he picked up on that, but Deacon's kind of just talking about how the rates work at this point, um, which Mugen picks up very quickly from Deacon, because again, numbers is his thing. He's very good with counting and numbers and math. He does struggle with learning words. It's not something he's good at. So um, very often he'll... He'll have to ask Deacon, what was this called again? What did you call that? He, he has a hard time memory for that type of thing. But faces and numbers, things like that, he's really, really good. He's also turned out to be really good at cooking, surprisingly. Uh, whatever they are able to find, they're very easy to kind of give it to Moog. And Moog puts it into some pretty tasty stuff. And uh, they're like, do you cook a lot at home? And he's like, well, we everybody cooks at home, but... Gullies are very used to having to make a lot out of nothing. Um, let's just say there's not the best of farmland in New Gully. There's some areas where farming sure is done, but uh, not what you traditional big old fancy farms of food. So they kind of go over there just chatting over these things, and Deacon's talking to Mugen of whatever he's teaching him that evening, and Sarah's kind of watching and smiles a little bit that they've become very good friends. Moog just jumped right in, and Mugen just jumped in and clicked. Um, at first there was a concern that the little guy might slow them down, you know, because nature, but, um, he's very amiable, um, and he's very, very, you know, quick witted in, in, in a way of, of survival specifically, something that gullies are, are more known for. So, uh, Deacon or Seraph tells him to do, not from a bossy standpoint, but this is how we have to do this. He's like, okay. It's not a question about that. Well, what about this way? He may offer suggestions and things like anybody else would, but uh, when things he doesn't have experience with, he, he just takes that as, okay, this is how things are done. Um, as he's sitting there, though, of course, sitting there thinking about friends, he can't help but think about their other friends back home, you know, friends, family, and at that time, the smiles kind of fades off his face. Deacon notices this and, you know, basically says, hey, Sarah, what you thinking about? Everything okay over there? Sarah's quiet for just a moment and then looks at Deacon and says, he should have been here. Case I cut out, I said, he should have been here by now. Deacon and Sarah had discussed this the last couple nights and knew exactly what he's talking about. Draven should have caught up by now. Even though they're doing their best to not just leave a trail and not just make a straight line, and even though several days earlier they managed to buy th three horses, two horses and a pony, um, from a small settlement, which definitely helped. Um, even on horseback, Draven should have caught up by this. Um, 
So that's an issue. That's a concern, right? Seraph had been preparing for that. He knew this conversation is coming. Eventually, my father's going to catch up. No matter what happens, even if Serenity sends a whole army out to get them, Draven will get there first. Um, the horseback allows them to travel more conveniently and quicker with Mugen. Seraph is faster than any horse is going to run and can maintain it for probably longer. But trying to run while carrying Deacon is, is not com comfortable and not always easy. So having horses and such uh, helps out a, a whole a whole lot. Um, but he knows that their last conversation was in anger. Can only assume their next conversation will be in more anger because his dad's going to be pissed. Um, he's been prepared to have that conversation for days now. Hasn't happened. Deacon agrees. Raven's hell of a tracker. No matter how well they hide. Seraph was alone, maybe. But with all of them there, probably not so much. We ask him, well, what do you think this means? Seraph basically says, well, the way I look at it, either two things have happened. Either one, Serenity's decided to let us go after all, which there's no way in the world I can imagine that's the case. Y'all know is the He has no reason to believe that. He goes, or worse, something has happened back home that's keeping them from... So the concern now is, are the friends and family in danger back in Serenity, Right? Who knows what happened? Another undead war jumps in. Oromon marches in. A new threat. Dragons, you know. Who knows in a world like this? The amount of stuff Mercy and friends have been involved in. Who knows what else could have popped up? Which, of course, means that their friends and loved ones could be at home and in danger. Everybody's kind of quiet after Seraph says that for a minute. And Egan's like, what do you think we should do? We're, we're going to continue on like we're doing. He's been thinking about it. He goes, we made our choice. And we have to trust that those back home are going to do what's to take care of themselves. But can't second guess this every day, or we're never going to be successful, regardless of which way. Mugen then, Mugen, okay, finally getting the terms. Like, we're still going? Okay, cool. Mugen gets up and goes to check on the horses before they go to bed. Uh, he goes, I'm going to go check on the horses. And he gets, hops up and goes to make sure they're fed and such. Uh, and both men can't help but smile at this. Mugen had never ridden a horse before this. Right? There aren't horses in New Belly. Maybe one or two you know, wild ones running around. Might have been someone's farm at some point. But uh, uh, they don't ride around on horses. You know, They're just too big, really, to be convenient. Um, so he'd never, he'd never ridden, but he's loving the experience. Getting to ride on a horse and how fast it goes. And he enjoyed being carried by Seraph when he was running real fast and such too. But just kind of that thrill, that speed was, is a ton of fun for him. And he's not complained once about it at all. Even though both men have noticed that when they get off the horses, Mugen's walking around really funny for a little while. You can imagine, if you, and you don't know, if you've never ridden horses before, and you all of a sudden start riding them hard all day, you will be in quite a bit of pain. Saddle sores is a term for a reason. It is not comfortable. Um, but I've had them. But I know people who have. Uh, so, you know, he's taken upon himself to kind of be in charge of the horses. Uh, Mugen has, in every facet and every chance he has, Mugen tries to be helpful. He wants to pull his own weight. He knows that they could be traveling much faster without him. Um, 
you know, in his head, he's constantly going over everything he knows, what he remembered from Dina, what he talked with Dina. He knew where his father was going to be taking Dina out of New Gully to head south. He knows that area very well. So, you know, he's doing everything he can to try to be helpful, not only in that regard, but helpful in the day-to-day. -day. I'll cook the meal while you guys prepare a fire and do all that stuff, things that they may be faster at, especially Deacon, snap a finger, fire pops up, right? You got to imagine he's being impressed by magic because even less than horses, Lugan has never seen magic. I'm sure he saw a few of them in entertainment back when he was in Serenity Keep for those couple of days, um, which would have been a thing. But now, anytime Deacon does anything that's a spell, Deacon makes a point of saying, okay, Moog, here's what I'm going to do. Watch, and I'll show you. Um, but just as most people would have a hard time remembering what a mage says, because most people listening to a spell are not going to remember the words. They might remember a little bit here and there. Mugen remembers nothing. Um, as soon as the spell is cast and he sees it, and ooh, that's cool, there's absolutely nothing that he can remember about the words in the least. Um, which, of course, they contribute to the fact that he has a hard time with languages or, or even learning new words and such of that nature. You can imagine it would be even harder with words of magic. So, Deacon, you know, and Sarah for now kind of planning out the next day. Um, Mugen had explained that the next day, based on their current rate of speed with the horses and the far distance they're traveling, which that boy can pretty much know down to the <laughs> to the meter or yard how far they've gone, the math stuff. Uh, he's uh, he says they he expects to be there at their at their current pace by early to mid afternoon the next day. Um, they're, now they they don't have any plans on going in New Gully. They're going to skirt around its edge. Kind of fault because remember they're coming down right they're coming down southeast they're going to go around it south to southeast corner where dina would have come out to continue down to rul so they're going around it and not through um but mugen finally comes back and both he and deacon head to bed seraph always takes first watch uh one he just needs less sleep in fact he he could comfortably go on a couple of days without sleep if he needs to um and that's partially Elvin. That's partially what Draven is, right? Because elves, even in D&D, very often have that ability. They don't need to sleep. As long as they rest, they can regain just by, you know, meditation and such. Um, he has a mix of that plus Draven's blood. So um, he could go for quite a while without sleep if he needs to. Um, so he very often just naps for a couple hours before dawn. He wakes the others up. They pack things up. When he wakes up, they're ready to And he is refreshed. So they all go. They all two of the boy, two of the men go to bed. Go to bed. I'm calling them men at this point. They're adults. Go to prepare themselves for sleep. Well, Seraph just kind of sits there and prepares to keep watch for the night. And as usual, of course, immediately his mind floats to the thoughts of Dina, which is where most of his thoughts are when he's not, you know, brooding that nature. So, Mugen was very correct. And the three um, reached New Gully the next day, or almost. Like I said, they're not going all into it. Well ahead of before they get there, you can see it. Uh, New Gully has this constant cloudy gray darkness over it. It's not to say the sun never comes through. It does, but not all the time. It's Most of it looks like there's a thunderstorm going on over there, even though it only has like normal weather and weather temperatures and things. Although New Gully has, uh, does occasionally have a pretty rough winter 
Uh, when it does get cold, it can get very cold. And let's attribute it to that, right? New Gully was technically the ruins of New York. It would have maintained its same environmental um, aspects when it moves to merged world. So, well, they get a pretty bad winter. They always get a rough winter. Sometimes they get a very bad winter. They can see the darkness in the sky and such well ahead of time before they even get close to it. Um, as I said, they planned on skirting around the edges, but even before then, as they start to get closer and closer to New Gully, both Seraph and Deacon run into problems. At first, it starts off just as a very uncomfortable nervousness. Um, but at some point, the closer they get, the stronger and stronger it gets. Um, and it's just almost like their entire body is screaming, don't keep going. Something's wrong. Don't go forward. Uh, Moog, of course. Mugen, Mugen feels nothing. He's just regular day in the woods for him. Um, but they have a growing sense of dread uh, the closer they get to the dead magic zone. And again, understandable, right? Anyone, cleric, mage, anyone who has magical abilities is going to have a hard time in a dead magic zone. That, that void, that emptiness, that their magic is gone, that they can't tap into that feeling they've probably had most of their lives. You take someone like Deacon, who has been tapped into wild magic, um, since basically birth, just like Petal has, um, he's never been without that feeling. So as he's getting closer, it's his body reacting to, hey, we don't want to go in there. That's not how we roll. Seraph has the same issue, but slightly different. Uh, Seraph is not a spellcaster. He may know a couple little tiny things that he can do. Even Draven had a couple little tiny skills, make a little fire here and there, but nothing that would be combat or important uh, based of that nature. But he has magical properties. And I've stressed many times that magical creatures like dragons and things like that do not go into dead magic zones. They're magical beasts in nature. In fact, most of the time, if you honestly looked at the makeup of a, the traditional fantasy dragon, their wings could never lift a body of that nature. It goes against the concept of almost anything that flies. Bird bones, hollow, so on and so forth. Dragons are chunky. <laughs> they are chonkers. They are not lightweights. Um, so their flying is partially wings, partially magic. So for them to lose all of those magical abilities, skills and such, it would drive them away. It would be literally to a point of life or death before any type of real magical creature would ever enter a dead magic the more powerful, the more hesitant they would be. And now Seraph is dealing with that. Remember, he's got demon blood in him. That pretty much just means magic blood right there. Um, and we already know his prophecies concerning his bloodline, right? So that can't be helpful. Um, but yeah, so things along that nature. So they both are feeling the same way, but for slightly different reasons. Mugen has absolutely no magical ability. The only thing he carries on him that's magical is the Warhammer that his father gave him. Fig's Warhammer was a pretty powerful Warhammer. And Fig would know that it's going to be even better outside of the dead magic zone. So it would make sense he would give it to his son if he's going to go out there. Here, you're going to go out there and you need to be protected. This is the most powerful thing we've got. But they don't get anywhere near as close to New Gully as they'd planned. They finally reach a point where they just can't go any further. Um, Deacon describes it almost as if there's a force pushing him. 
likening it to two magnets where the wrong, you know, two ends attract, but you turn around, you're trying to press them together. It's like that. It's like there's literally something pushing him, not wanting him to go further. Um, and also describes it as a feeling of sadness and loss, because it really would be that. It would be a loss of part of who he is for the time that he's in there. In theory, he should get all his magic back when he comes out. Uh, that's what happened to the heroes previously. Uh, will that happen again? Mm, hard to know. Again, Mugen feels absolutely nothing. <laughs> so they decide that they're going to try uh, and travel wider of New Gully than they planned. This is going to add some time to their trip, and they're not real happy about that, but they're really in a position they don't have a lot of, a lot of choice. So they start making their way around. It takes them almost six full days to get around New Gully to the area that they're supposed to be. As I said, you'll remember, Fig was going to take them through New Gully, where they'd be safer, to a point where they'd be able to X out where it'd be easier to travel, because there'd be much more plains area, and where they're traveling before was very marshy. Uh, heading out through the south, it becomes very dry land and such very carefully, and as long as they head southeast enough, they'll avoid the area of desert that is south, uh, so slightly southeast of... Um, New Gully, which, if you'll remember, had the evil elven Egyptian pyramid that way back in the day, one of the groups had to go into, and then they were betrayed by the female mage. Flashbacks, right? Lots of things. I haven't messed with this area of the world in a while. So they're finally going around as wide as they can. They try to get as close as they can, uh, but even when they can't, they go a little bit further away just so they can get a good night's sleep. The first night, they don't, and Deacon barely gets sleep. Even Seraph isn't restful from it. So they, they're, they're definitely being inconvenienced by the dead magic zone. Um, but finally, they reach the area where Mugen's like, this is it. This is where they would go. Now, this is mostly fields, if you will, at this point. Just open plains. Very, very minor rolling hills. Lots of tree areas, but not a giant thick forest. Uh, dry, occasional rain. Outside of New Gully, the weather is quite different. In fact, New Gully is almost on an opposite season. Um, so when it's summer everywhere around New Gully, that's when it's winter in New Gully. So on and so forth. So, here it's very summer-like. Um, there are no tracks. They find no trails of a wagon. At this point, it's probably been well over a month, if not a month and a half, uh, since Mugen even left New Gully. It took him weeks to get to, to Serenity on foot all by himself. He knew the direction and such, but just a little guy on foot. And he wasn't in a hurry, right? He was just on an adventure. Um, so even though they've been hurrying back, they're still way behind Dina at this point. So there's nothing they can look for for tracks or trails. Any rain would have washed that away long before now. But they were prepared. So when they reach this area, Deacon prepares to cast a spell. Sheriff's like, hey, it's going to work? Deacon's like, I don't know. I've never cast this spell before. Research it before we left. I've got the spell. We're going to give it a shot. Says, Do you have something? Did you bring something of Dina's? And Seraph was like, Sure, he reaches a new pouch and he hands her a small hair clip. Why does he have the small hair clip? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it got broken, he was going to fix it, whatever the case is. He has a small hair clip of Dina's, a memento of hers, for whatever reason. And Bacon's like, okay, and he begins to cast the spell. Um, so when he does, 
even he feels slower than normal, and he feels like they're still too close to the dead magic zone because he he feels as he's casting the spell, almost like something's pulling it out of him, draining him. Um, so when he does finally cast the spell, it took a little more out of him than normally it should have. But he casts the spell, and then there's just nothing for a moment. Then finally, they all start to see almost like a, a faint, glowing, shimmering line. It just kind of goes off in the distance towards the southeast. And, every, you know, Deacon and Sarah smile, and, and Mugen's like swiping at it. He's like, what, what is this? And he's excited because he knew he was casting a spell, but he didn't know what it was. What did it do? Did you make a pretty line? What is this? And he's like, no, that's the trail. It's, it's looking for its owner. It's seeking out Dina. This is the path. And it's not right there. It's probably like, like, oh, look, 30 feet to the left. We can see the line. They're obviously not standing in the exact spot. You know, let's be honest. So they walk over there. and like, ah, there's the line. Cool. This is going to lead us towards Dina. Um, and Seraph asks, does this mean she's still alive? And Deacon cautions him. He's like, I can't say that. Spell only says that she was here. She was in this area, and it's trying to find the direction that she went. It only shows the time taken, not the timeline. This is hers. She could have went this way yesterday, or it could have been 10 years ago. It doesn't tell us that. It only tells us that the owner of this, who synced to it, went that direction in the past. She was alive when she was going through here, but whether she's still alive today, can't say. Um, but he puts his hand on, you know, Sarah's shoulder and reassures him. He's like, I'm sure she's alive. We've got a trail. This is what we came here for. Now we know that she made it out of New Gully Fine, which there's no reason to think that she didn't. That's going to be a bit of a, you know, hey, remember, she's out of here alive. She's doing okay. The gully's protected her and got her through like they, like they were supposed to. So now it's just a matter of catching up to her. So they get ready to head off down the trail. As they do start to have, Mugen stops for just a minute and kind of looks back over his horse, back towards the gray clouds in the distance to the north, uh, and can't help but wonder, you know, will he ever see his home again? And if so, how long will that be? But, you know, with kind of a chuckle and a smile, he says, bye, Figgy. He turns his horse and follows after Deacon and Seraph. So... When Mugen left, he was under the assumption he was going to be gone for a long time. They had prepared him for that, right? Sent him to Mercy to hopefully learn and be protected and get some experience in the outside world. Wasn't supposed to come back two weeks later. So he knew he was going to be gone for a while, although even he knows this, what I'm doing now, probably going to make that much longer than, than Figgy would have been. Um, there was no way to get word to Figgy, even if he'd gone to the edge of the... Uh, Dead magic zone. The gullies don't normally just hang out near the edge of the. They're deeper in than that. Because some things, even people, will occasionally go through the edge of it. But how uncomfortable it makes everybody feel, whether you're magic or not, a regular human going through, it still makes you feel uncomfortable. The air feels different when you've been in a world of magic your whole life. Got to assume your body is somewhat adapted to that. Um, so people will sometimes dip in and out. Not even the gullies knowing, but if they get in deep enough, there are gully wa gullies watching and such, and that's how they there are patrols. But and the chance of finding a gully outside of the dead magic zone doesn't happen. Biggie makes sure of that. They are not safe out there. No one leaves. The closest they ever get is to the north when they trade with the centaurs, and they've been doing that now for over twenty years. In fact, they're, they're become a regular part of both of their lives and economy. Uh, they're constantly bringing stuff. 
of value. And now that Figgy's making, you know, getting a hold of metal and he's tinkering, you can imagine he's probably forging weapons and such. These gullies are not unarmed. He's teaching them to fight. He's teaching them to survive and take care of themselves. He's going to start teaching them trades. And some of them are going to have some skill at some things. You might be good at being a blacksmith or a weaponsmith or an armorer. They're of some kind. They may not be making full plate mail, but they might be making things. Things that would help the gullies should there ever be a point where they have to honestly defend their lives or their way. Um, Figgy is always preparing them for that. So according to the maps that they have, the journey to Arduel should take several weeks. It's, it's a long distance. It's not just a, a quick jaunt through the forest. It's a long ways, and that's with them you know, going straight there. Um, but the, the three of them are determined to get there even faster. So they're really pushing themselves, not to the point of unhealthiness. They don't want to hurt their horses, but they are stopping, make sure the horses get the rest they need. They're sleeping less. Now that they have a trail to follow, all of them, even Mugen, you know, they're like, hey, it's, it's a bit exciting. It's like, we're on the trail. Okay, we've got a clue. Let's go. We want to get there faster. Because the hope is they catch up to them in or by before Arduel, and they get to bring her home. But this is not that long of a trip, you know? If that's the case, if they can, in fact, get a hold, you know, catch up to them, their hope is to try to catch ship to Darstopia because they know there's a magical mirror that they can portal back out. And no matter how angry their parents may be that they left, I'm sure they'll be fine letting them use the portal to get back. And that's always been their hope. Say, hey, Darsh, sorry to bother you. It's us. This is my lady. This is her family. I need to get us back to Serenity where we can protect them. Can we use your mirror? Can you call my parents on the phone and say, on the, on the orb, and say, hey, they're all here safe. Can we get home? And that's what they're hoping this is. A very quick get there, get her, get back home kind of thing. Because there is dangers out here for all of them, including, including Dina. So, they push themselves. Um, now, once again, one of their first concerns between Deacon and Seraph is that the pace might be too much for Mugen. But the little warrior keeps up very easily. He's incredibly determined and very durable. I want to stress that. When it comes to surviving... Gullies have that above just about everybody else. Kender probably close. Be close second. Kender have to do that to survive sometimes because a lot of the world just don't want them. But gullies are even worse because gullies are very often just considered. So having to survive in the worst situations to adapt to what they need to do. Um, and on top of that, he has half gnome, half figgy in him. Uh, so that's going to be a little up as well. So they make very, very good time. They do their very best to avoid settlements, right? They're trying to follow the path as closely as they can. Um, A, because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. And from the trail that they have, it seems that Dina's family was doing the same thing. Um, how long behind Deanna are, uh, Dina are they? I don't remember if you said. I haven't specifically said. So <clears throat> by the time they reach New Gully, and they cast their spell, the estimate is that they're probably at least six to eight weeks behind. At the most, right? Because you think that Dina left New Gully the same day Mugen left New Gully, just in opposite directions. It took him, like I said, almost probably three to four weeks minimum of just walking to get there. So that's a month right there. 
There were several days. Now they've been traveling for a week or so to get back. Still much faster with horses, but it's still been a week or two to get back. <clears throat> we're probably looking at two months, or maybe just shy two months, from when Dina is where they are right now. <clears throat> but the hope is, of course, they're trying to, they're catching up. Well, they know that Dina and her family are in a hurry as well. And that's another thing. They weren't just on a casual stroll. They were pushing to get to Arduel because supposedly there was a ship they were going to try to catch there to go further east. So they know they're chasing someone who's also going very fast, or as fast as possible, the wagon and such. One reason why they got the horses, this would allow them to travel faster with Mugen. Great question, though, Michael. Thank you. Um, so the spell and the hair clip, and that's they have the hair clip. Basically, they can say a command word and it'll make the line show up. It's not there forever, right? Not anybody just walking around can see it. Um, you have to be within range of the hair clip. Probably got the spells, probably got like a 10 foot radius. Anybody in that 10 foot radius will see the line if they're within 10 feet of the hair clip. Um, but after a while, it fades and you use the command word to turn it back on again. Usually, there's a cool down period. So, a lot of times, they'll try to use that time to rest the horses, get a bite to eat, use the bathroom, stuff like that. Um, or if it's going a, a distance that direction, they're like, well, they've been going straight for an hour. I think we can turn it off and let it rest and continue for an hour. But like I said, that their path has also been avoiding um, any type of settlement. Because they can sometimes see that. They'll come across, they may cross across a dirt road that's going one direction. Like, okay, we can stick on the road, which might be faster. But we don't know if down the road their path might go completely off of that. And now we're going the wrong direction. So they try to stick with Dina's path as, as much as they can. Um, let's see. Now, one thing that Deacon also explains uh, about the hair clip spell is that the more people that are around, the less it's going to work. Explain that. So, I have this hair clip that points me at Dina. I walk into RUL and I'm surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people. The hair clip's going to have a harder time finding her path in that. That makes sense. Now, out here in the plains and away from no one, not a lot of other people were probably traveling across the plains in this area, you could imagine, right? Not a lot of people coming from New Gully. But the closer they get to Arduel and, and the closer they get to settlements and larger groups of people, the weaker it will get. And Deacon's probably like, by the time we get to Arduel, it probably is not going to work. That doesn't mean we can't track her out of Arduel. If she did get past there, we could pick up her trail again. But, as long as we have the circlet, but when we get into larger settlements and cities, this is not going to help us. And they knew that from the beginning, right? So they're prepared for that. Um, the tra area that they're traveling through right now is, has a, almost like a spring-like weather. Uh, mostly open plains, like I said, mostly flatlands, plenty of water, rivers, and plenty of game. So they don't have any problem finding food and supplies. Um, you're never going to have a hard time finding food and supplies if you have Seraph or, or, or Draven with you. Because he could just run down a deer. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but straight up, he just could, you know? Um, some animal, I'm not saying he's faster than every animal alive, but in a burst like that, especially if he's being extra quiet and sneaky, which he would be able to do more than a human, um, very likely <laughs> he's going to be able to catch game much easier. Deer, rabbits and such, maybe not so much, right? Because rabbits aren't going to run quite as straight. <laughs> rabbits, man, have you ever seen a rabbit run? They're all over the place. <whistles> Suddenly they're in a hole you didn't know was there. But some larger game and fishing and such, they use that opportunity when they can to, to refill water and supplies. They don't have anything magical, so they can only carry as much as they can. 
the horses again helping. Uh, you can imagine that when all, like I said, Mugen's got a bag of money, although Deacon and Seraph have been paying for everything at this point. Um, explaining, this is how much money you have, this is what you should use it for. But saddlebags, saddles, they would have bought all that. And neither boy is poor, right? Like, Deacon comes from some money, you can imagine. Uh, and, uh, or I'm sorry, Seraph does. Deacon comes from wealth. He has, if he went to his father and he's like, Dad, I need 500 gold. He's a good kid. He's been raised well. He's probably not going to question. He's like, okay, here, I'll write this down and go get it. You're either going to go get something really useful. You're going to be helping somebody with that money. He's going to trust his son. So Deacon would have access to a large amount of money in Serenity as well, in case he needed to buy something, right? You'd imagine. Get a horse. Maybe he saw something nice he wanted to get for his mom or his brother or something. Whatever the case He has access to cash. So none of these guys are poor at this point. They have adequate money. So they were able to get things like saddlebags and such, so they could have a lot of, they got bedrolls, things that they couldn't carry out of the city, they've been able to get after that. Uh, Tyla pops in and says, hey man, I'm working, but I'm here. Sorry, miss. <laughs> you're well, you know, no worries at all. Just jumping into the story. <laughs> Glad you're able to make it. Um, so yes, so they're able to find food, water, materials of that nature, uh, supplies very, very easily. Not Like I said, not going through a forest, there's plenty of trees, so for wood for campfires, so on and so forth. And the further they get away from Serenity, the less they feel they have to hide their tracks. Because again, at this point, Raven would have found them if he was coming. So, doesn't mean he may not come eventually, but at this point, they're not having to be as cautious to hide their track. They can now push harder forward to try to catch up to Dina. Because again, Seraph has that hope that if Draven shows up, they're like, listen, we're two weeks, here's a trail. Help us go get her, and we can all go home together. And hopefully win over his father in that way. Because having his father help would be definitely a bonus, right? Um, so let's see here. So they were a week away from New Gully. So they've been, at this point, well, seven, eight days away from New Gully following this trail when they first ran into their first bit of trouble. Um, unfortunately, Deacon's horse tossed his shoe. Now, we don't know what that means. Horseshoes, right? Horses have horseshoes. Uh, a horse without a horseshoe can, especially if you're pushing them, can be an issue. Uh, more likely for the horse to get hurt and things of that nature. And running on three shoes and one not shoe is very bad for a horse. So at this point, they don't have the ability to fix that. They realize they're going to have to go in to some type of, find a blacksmith um, or farrier to go ahead and fix this. Or farrier is the term of someone who fixes horseshoes. Remember the term correctly. I believe it's farrier. Don't hold me to that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so let's see. Um, see where we're. So they had no choice but to enter. So they start making their way. They're gonna walk their horses a little bit at this point. They Mugen stays up on his because it's just faster to, to ride. But the others are walking their horses, and they they finally a couple days within a day come to a small settlement they can see in the distance. Normally they would go wide and, and avoid that, which the trail of Dina's appears to do. But instead, they're going to have to go into town. So they make their way into town. Um, and the town itself is uh, probably a few hundred people. So there's multiple homes, several businesses, things of that nature. Um, there's no big wall around it or anything of that nature. There's probably not a lot of direct threats. You know, orc armies and things in this area. They're smack between Firemoon and Arduel. You know, there's not a lot of huge evil 
groups of people. You know what I mean? There could be ogre kingdoms, orc kingdoms, goblin kingdoms. They're all over Merge World. But there's nothing in the middle of these two areas. Uh, but, of course, they probably still have some type of city guard and things. Because you can still have brigands and small troops of things. Goblins and ogres may try to take, come in and rob them and things of that nature. Uh, but they do go ahead and head into this town. They, so they're approaching it. They see it, the name of the town is Greenfield. And it looks like it's a primarily human population. A couple hundred people at most. Uh, they're really on the outside of town. Uh, when they already come across, like, they come across a smithy. A smithy just on the very edge of town. Could be odd if you think about it. Normally you'd think the smithy would be a bit more in the town as it has precious materials that you could be working with as well as helping everybody. But it's more on the outskirts of town. Uh, which they make their way to it and, and they're introduced and meet that the, the owner is a dwarf named Brogan. Brogan lives there alone. They're like, hey, Brogan, this is what we're looking for. Horse tosses shoe. Brogan takes a look at it. They manage to find the shoe. They have it with them. He's like, well, yeah, I can fix it. Yeah, this, this I can do. Uh, it'd probably take about an hour. And they talk price and such, but he asks a fair price right off, pretty much off the bat. So there's not really a lot of haggling going on. He says it shouldn't take more than about an hour. So they're talking about this. So like this was going on. He's just talking. Brogan's investigating and such. Um, and they were just about to ask, hey, is there like maybe an inn in town? Someplace we can grab a quick bite to eat while we're waiting. Maybe pick up some supplies, things of that nature. They're about to ask those things when about that time, a deep voice calls out from behind. I knew if we let a dwarf stay, it wouldn't be long until more freaks turned up. The young men turn, and they can see coming down from the village a very large human with four more tough-looking brutes. Um, the guy up front, the speaker, is a, a very well-muscled guy. You know, exactly what you expect him to look like. Um, and you can see that he's got a pretty well made and well-used flail on his, on his belt. Well-made, well-used means someone who probably knows how to use it. And him and his four goons are coming walking up towards these guys. Now, Brogan, the dwarf, steps up and says, they just stopped to get their horses shooed, Derek. They're just passing through. They can tell that he seems a bit nervous when he's saying this. And when he'd been hang talking with them about such, he kept looking at Seraph and Mugen, of course, right? You know, like, you know, and they picked up on that. Like, he's not like he was scared of them, but something was making him uncomfortable. This big dude shows up. Derek, rep Derek replies, shut your mouth, you filthy dwarf. I ain't talking to you. Now, it is very clear to all of them that this man is, is a bully. And from the sounds of it, probably a racist town bully. And just like in our world, they exist in most every town. Um, and he immediately begins joking and throwing insults and such at Seraph and, and Mugen. Freaks and with the white hair, you look all pale, maybe we should get some sun. And you can imagine the stuff that they could come up to say about Mugen. Clearly, most, if not all, gully as well as the very wild way he's dressed, tattoos, hair, and things of that nature. 
Um, and after insulting to him, he insults Moog, uh, Deacon for, you know, basically for hanging out and consorting with freaks and such. But it's very clear that this big guy, Derek, does not like other races. Very human. Now, Mugen is genuinely confused by the things that Derek is saying. And he just straight up says, why do you say bad things about Mugen? Very confused. Neither Seraph nor Deacon really had a chance to say anything to him. Kind of asked this straight up. And one of the brutes begins to, you know, just like, ring, ring, with that kind of whiny, trying to, seriously, to mock the way he sounds and such. And they all start laughing, of course, mocking it at Mugen. Well, now that, that's a little bit much. Seraph, Seraph takes a few steps forward. He's only standing a couple of feet from Derek, who's now, of course, they've all stopped laughing and he's kind of looking at Seraph. Because Seraph's standing there. He's got a sword, right? He's got weapons on him. He's in pretty good shape. He's a weird looking dude. In the grand scheme of things, to people who don't know him, right? Very pale skin. He's got the kind of glowy red eyes like his father. He's got the long hair. Um, white, white hair. <laughs> and he stands like right by. I think he was at 6'1, is what I said he was at, I think. 6'6'1. Six, six, Stare stepped forward and stands a few feet from him and calmly says that there's no reason to mock the causing no harm. There's no reason to mock my friend. He's not doing you any harm. And not allow you to continue to insult my friends. Best if you move. In his mind, Deacon immediately starts thinking the words of his spell. Right? Because he knows Seraph, and he knows that Seraph hates bullies. You might remember their very first meeting between the two boys when they were kids. Ever since, from that day on, Seraph did not tolerate someone bullying someone else, regardless of the reason. Derek, of course, turns around and starts talking to his men, joking and such, but, oh, look, the little white-haired freak's got his ears all tied up in a bow, you know. Panties in a knot. That type of reference is what he's making. The friends are laughing. And then very quickly, Derek spins. He's very quick. Derek's a trained fighter. And he throws a punch straight at Sarah's face. And the man's skilled. He knows how to throw a punch. And he's fast. And he's strong. He's bigger than Sarah is. He's probably about 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. Very big old brute looking guy. Um, and he's punching. he punches with enough strength to probably could fell a horse. Um, punch was well executed and the man was clearly no novice. It was just too bad for him that the punch never landed. Without an effort, Seraph caught the man's punch, stomping it in midair with one hand. Derek stood there for just a second, shocked. And then Seraph squeezed. Derek cries out in pain, immediately falling to his knees. The other bullies take a couple steps back, not understanding what's going on. There's absolutely no emotion showing on Seraph, just looking down at the man, who is screamed out in pain. Derek's looking up, and there's tears on his face. It hurts so bad. He knew his hand was broken. Like, literally, he just he felt his hand break. But he's still squeezing it, and it hurts. You can imagine. your hand. It's like, it's like getting your hand caught in a clamp of some kind. 
like a mechanical clamp. Seraph just looks down at him and says, if it was just me, I'd have let this go. You've disrespected my friends. Not allow. You've also disrespected this fine dwarf. And I have a feeling it wasn't for the first time. Derek cried out again as a finger popped out of socket. Seraph had squeezed a little. Mugen looks up at Deegan, a little confused, like, uh... Deegan just puts his hand on his shoulder and pats, letting the man know, okay, involved. He doesn't say it, but it's kind of that feeling. Like, okay. Seraph kneels down, still holding Mugen's hand. The man's literally just got tears running. It hurts so bad. If you've ever had a broken bone, it hurts. You can imagine somebody then starts squeezing it nonstop. It's going to hurt even more. He kneels down. He's looking at, and he looks at, at right at Derek and says, it's out of respect for my mother that I'm going to let you trouble anyone again. I swear to you, I will break. Then kind of like lets go and pushes a bit and Derek falls backwards and Crawls back with his one good hand, and his friends rush in and help him up to his feet. And they just kind of, and Seraph just kind of stands there looking at them. The men hurry off up the road back and towards the town. They're sitting there, just kind of wiping his hands off. The man stunk, probably greasy hands, gross. <laughs> Rogan steps up and says, Oh, you've opened up a can, can of worms now, my boy. Seraph looks down and raises an eyebrow and says, Oh? His father's the town mayor. He'll be back with more trouble. Seraph just smiles and goes, Is that so? Deacon smiles as well and rolls his eyes. I guess I'd better get dressed. Moog just stands there, looks at the two of them, and then looks at Deacon, very confused. But you already got clothes on! Now, Jacob had been the captain of Greenfield's guards or militia for over 10 years. And in all that time, he'd had no bigger pain in the arse than Mayor Burt and his son, Derek. You can imagine, since he's over, his son's a bully, he's the mayor, blah, 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 always getting into trouble. He's a dude just trying to be the peacekeeper in this town, right? Moments like those, I don't. If a player can intimidate me, they definitely intimidated the character. <laughs> Seraph rarely has to roll for intimidation. Uh, good question. Very, very rarely would ever have to roll for intimidation. Um, I don't ever remember ever making anybody ever do. I don't remember that being in second edition. I don't think there's actually a skill for intimidation. <clears throat> we role play it, and anything. I would handle the creature's response. There is things for, like, in combat, fighting. You can roll for morale to see whether or not uh, the forces give up and try to flee and things of that nature. You're, you're fighting 20 goblins, you kill 10 of them, the other 10 are like, ooh, maybe we should leave, you know? Um, that type of thing exists, but I don't ever remember ever requiring anyone to roll for intimidation. Uh, normally someone's either intimidating or not, but for me, it would be role-playing. I'm like, someone's like, I'm going to intimidate. I'm like, okay, what do you say? Let's hear it. 
you know? And then I'm imagining that coming out of their character. But I guess kind of like you, it'd be more of a, however you, you know, however you word it, what are you going to say? Don't just say, I'm going to scare him. Tell me what you're going to say. I'll tell you whether he's scared by it or not. Because they don't know what's inside that person's mind and such, as well as I'm the person playing them. I know whether they're truly a coward or they a foolhardy person that would take that as a challenge, you know? Um, they can only try what they think will work, deal with the consequences. Um, but you already got clothes on already. So Jacob's like, oh, so you can imagine when the mayor comes storming, banging on the door of his home, and he opens it up, and he's there with his son, whose hands like purple and bent up in a weird way, and says that evil, cre either fr evil freaky creatures have, have attacked his son and are in the city. Obviously, Jacob knows there's more than that to the story, but he also knows this guy is not a guy that's normally going to get mushed up like that. So whoever did that would legitimately be a concern. Jacob immediately calls for some of the guard, and he and the mayor and son and ten of his guards make their way down to Brogan's smithy at the edge of town. Um, let's see. Right. Make your way down. They head down to the smithy. They arrive. They can see that they're leaning against the, you know, against a fence, kind of chatting, watching um, Brogan fix the shoe. Because um, Brogan's working. For the record, Seraph's like, it's important. Go in there and work on this. We're going to take care of this. We'll make sure you are not involved. Okay? If any blame comes on us, you can get that done for us. That's all we ask. I would rather stay out of it, so yeah. So he gets me there, he's working on his horse. Jacob comes down and he sees the three figures, and immediately he's like, okay, this is definitely outside the normal. Um, and as odd as you'd imagine that Seraph does, in many of these situations, Seraph is not the first person that most people are going to notice in this party. They're going to notice Mugen. Seraph is definitely an odd-looking person. From the average. But he does have that kind of elven look to him. In fact, many people might see him and think he's some type of muscular albino elf. Um, hanging on the door store wasn't me. <laughs> but you know what I mean? He could very play off that. He could be like, oh yes, I, I'm an elf. I'm just an albino. You know, and he's, he's much more muscular than the normal thinner frame of elf that he got from his father. Um... But, you know, he could play that off. And that's how most people are going to see him. Ooh, you look weird. What are you? I'm an elf. Got an albino? Yeah. All right. Weird, though. You could. That's the kind of the, the looks he's going to get from a lot of, of, of people. Some people might find, it, might find it very attractive. You know, not from a sexual point of view, but, wow, what a cool-looking thing. You're really exotic. What the hell are you? You know, I mean, that's the type of question that... You know, here in our world, that's rude as shit, and it should be. But, you know, in something like Merge World, in a world where there's all these worlds that have been combined, what are you and where are you from is kind of a normal question now. Uh, and it's not taken as insulting. It doesn't have to be, depending on how the person is, you know, inflecting it and such. It can be legitimately, wow, you seem interesting. What are you? Oh, I'm a half badger, half dwarf. Where is that from? My world's called blah, blah, blah. Now you've got a story, you know? So, <laughs> ooh, dwarf that could dig like a badger. Put a pin in that and remember that. But, you know, just in general. So you see, sir, but Mugen, exotic. He looks 
mostly like a gully dwarf. He's a little bigger. Um, which, you know, oddly enough, gully dwarves are, are bigger than gnomes, but he's actually a little bit big for even a gully. Not a huge amount, but a little bit. But his the hair and the bright and the tattoos, he looks very wild. You know, very barbarian-like. That's going to be an odd thing when someone's so used to seeing just a gully dwarf being normally covered in dirt and filthy clothes and rags and whatever. This is a guy standing there with a really nice hammer strapped to his back and some good gear on him. So when they arrive, as he walks up, Deacon's like, can I help you, my good man? Or, oh, Seraph, I'm sorry. Seraph says that. Honeydorf. <laughs> Honeydorf. That's a great name for that. Um, but Sarah says, can I help you, sir? And Jacob looks at him, because he'd already been described by uh, the prick. <laughs> he'd already been described by me. He's like, he just looks at him, he's kind of surprised. He looks at him and goes, huh. I thought you'd be bigger. Because you can imagine that. This is this big bully. He gets beaten up by somebody. You expect it to be like a half-ogre or something like that. And yes, Tyler, feel free to throw your question out. I'd be happy to answer it. I can. Um, he goes, Derek here says that uh, you attacked him and his men. Messed up his hands pretty bad. Um, question by Tyler. If, say, during the merging of worlds, could someone's consciousness be passed through an animal and have a sentient animal? Um, I'll, give you the, I'll give you my normal answer, which is maybe. Because um, that's one of my favorite things about merged worlds. Anything can happen, right? Um, I would say it's not likely only because when the worlds were reformed, everything was brought back to the exact way it was from the chunk that they're in. Um, so the chunk of land that was the kingdom of fire moon, everybody goes back to the way, because literally the way I explained it is that everything exploded basically atoms and then reformed, but chunks of that, were pulled out of their worlds and thrown together to create this. It wasn't until later in the story that they learned that it didn't create a world, it was actually a, a new plane of existence that mirrors the prime material plane. It's not the prime material plane, and the world's not round. It's actually built like a giant chalice, where it's giant flat on top and the water falls off. As it gets to the bottom, it domes in and comes up through the center, and there's a giant hole the water comes up out of into what's called the central sea, and the water flows through. It's very uh, porous, kind of like a sponge, so water comes up through the ground to the lakes and such, and that's why water flows away from the center sea, where most things, water very often can even coming out of mountains where there's no source, it's just coming up through the ground. So it's a prime material plane, and the assumption was a chunk of each of those worlds was thrown together. Now, does that mean there's a chunk missing from that world? Is there a giant crater there? No one's returned to the original world to know. So the concept they've often wondered is, and it's been asked by my players and asked by a lot of people who are fans, is are these possible that these are duplicates of the original? Is there a Darsh and a Mercy back on the original world? Maybe. I never really said for sure. But I will say, regardless, for most of them, there can't be now. Because during the, the, the big fight in Omniana, the god of chaos and goddess of, of order were released, they explained that they had tried to do that many times. So the merge kept happening over and over again. 
inside this prime material plane until they could get the right combination of people together to cause Omniana to be free. Now, how many times? They didn't say, but it was implied that potentially hundreds, if not thousands of years may have gone by from the original merge to this point. Which means even if you return to the original one, there were duplicates, unless maybe an old elf, most everyone would be dead anyways. And that's why most people never returned home, because everyone they knew and loved would have already been gone by this point. Going back, means going back to your world, that doesn't mean anything that you know or loved is still there. Where here, many people, at least a chunk of their world and the people they love are still here, they can rebuild. And that's kind of what, what caused a lot of that. Um, uh, so as everything is rebuilt because they were trying to find that combination, they never really, the, the, the spell that caused that never really went and merged people or anything of that nature. Um, and that was the order side of the rule. Cause again, Omnion are two gods trapped in one body, chaos and order constantly fighting for control. The order side of it, that's why there's perfect sections of worlds all thrown together. Um, so it's kind of like that. Uh, but it wasn't until they, you know, they unlocked the source in Omniana that they learned this. And that's why every area has a 24-hour day, even though this continent is so huge. It's one equivalent. The world is just one giant continent that would take years and years to cross. And at this point, the people on far one side, even if they'd been traveling all this time, still wouldn't have made it to the other side. It's a massive world which gives me the freedom to do anything I want anywhere from a DM point of view, which is very nice and still have it in my world. Massive, massive world. We've been, we've not even handling a postage stamp of everything we've done is a very small area of this, of this new world. So there are multiple suns and the suns literally go off the edge of the world and more of them come out so that everything has a 24 hour cycle, even though it would take a sun much more than 24 hours to cross from one side of the world. And that's why the stars don't move. And that's something that I stressed early on. The stars stopped moving because the world's not spinning. Those are literally there. They're just lights in the effect of stars. Are the actual planets? Nobody knows. The stars stopped moving. And the suns and moons circle the actual world. That was a little aside there. Great question, though. I was happy to... I kind of went off on a tangent from what you originally asked. Hopefully that... Is it possible that could have happened? If the mood hits me, but not really. <laughs> but could there be a world where animals were all sentient? Much more likely. A world where almost everything has happened once. Okay. So, so I was told you, Jacob goes, the mayor, Shasira says that there's, the mayor's son says that yeah, you and your friends attacked him. And Deacon, of course, steps forward and begins to do all the talking. Seraph and Mugen, who was told to just sit back and not say anything, are just watching. Deacon steps in and introduces them. I would like, first, my good man, let me introduce myself and my friends. This is Seraph Bloodborne of Serenity. And this is Mugen of New Gully, to which none of them would have ever heard of New Gully, but it's not rare to hear of someone who's been traveling since the merge from a place no one's ever heard of. He goes, and my name is Prince Deacon Firemoon from the Kingdom of Firemoon. Now, Jacob takes a good look at this guy for the first time. So he was kind of focused more on the two wild-looking guys. But now he's looking at Deacon, who's dressed in very fine clothing. 
And not only that, he's wearing the colors that this man would know as Firemoon's the Kingdom to the North. These guys aren't a part of that. The Kingdom of the North is Firemoon, Kingdom of the Southeast is already well. You're going to know these two kingdoms are here. And he can see that he's wearing a seal, which would be a royal seal, which a royal seal, the way I look at it, it's not really like a clerics thing, but it's like a necklace. And it's usually very expensive. Gold or platinum, gems inlaid, something you'd have to be very wealthy to have and is the seal of that kingdom to say, yes, this is someone of note. And they re and he sees this and he realizes this is very likely either someone who's really good at faking or legitimately the prince of, of Fire Moon that's standing in front of me. And you can imagine in his mind, all he can think is, fuck, this is not the level of, of issues I needed to deal with. At first, he's like, I'm going to have to go deal with some people, kick them out of town, find them or whatever, lock them up. But now he's like, I have the mayor's son who's saying one thing, and the other one is the prince of the kingdom to the north, whose king is a pretty powerful king and has a huge army, including the Knights of Fire Moon, which is its own thing to deal with. Is it ch possible that chunks of the same world could be scattered all over the plane? Yes, it is. And yes, for 100%, Michael, that is the fact. There have been several situations where they've actually had to run into that from time to time. But yes, the best example I can give of that is Darsh, who finally found his cousin Rokar. Rokar was on a ship on their world. And after the merge, was on a ship in the New Ocean and ended up hanging out and ended up joining in Kronayar. Darsh was on a piece of land far away from home, and that brought him through, and they end up finding him there. Another example of that um, would be Mercy, right? Because Mercy had left home, but her father ends up showing him, right? And her father shows up, and he had joined up with the Knights of the Light at that point. He's part of an order from their world, but all the people following him joined up, and he's now one of the leaders of the Knights of Light. So he and Mercy both showed up, but in different chunks. So yes, multiple chunks of the same world, I can guarantee, has happened many, many times. And some chunks could be small. You may find a chunk the size of the average living room. You know what I mean? You may find just a half a house in a swamp. That's the size, it's like 50 meters round, and then everything else outside of that's desert, right? And then there could be some chunks like Oramon, which is huge. Ormon and Santriel, the Elven Kingdom, are the two largest chunks that they've come across, except for Dragonaria, but they don't get to talk about that one. Another good question. Thank you, Michael. So in his mind, Jacob at this point is like, I did not need this trouble today. But that's what he's thinking, but in his face, he's like, ah, he's like, you know, he's like, ah, well, well met, your highness. Very odd. What is a Prince of Fire Moon doing down here in our little village. Beacon takes off his gloves, fancy gloves, and shakes Jacob's hands and says, Ah, he goes, my men and I were heading south to Arduel on King's business, and my horse tossed a shoe. So we weren't far from here. We saw your town. We came in, and this wonderful young dwarf over here offered to do the work for us. And I must say, I've seen his work. Exceptional work. I'm very happy with it. He goes, say, and then, for no reason at all, this ruffian, and his friends decided to try to accost my men and mock my guide. And he points at Mugen. Now you, Jacob's looking at, uh-huh. And he turns and he looks at the mayor and the mayor's like, the mayor now realizes what kind of can of worms his son has pulled him into. 
And Jacob's like, well, allow me to introduce you to the mayor of our fine town and this young man's father. And his father's like, you son of a bitch. Like, you can imagine he's not happy about that. Yes, yes, this is Bert. Yeah, I named him Bert because I'm, I'm funny like that. This is Mayor Bert, and uh, it's his father, yes. Deacon turns to him and goes, ah, this is your son, you say. Isn't that lovely? Um, yes, this man, this dwarf is taking care of our things, and... Uh, Completely, without cause, your son decided to accost my man. Now, at this point, he can say, no, my son said it was your fault, and you're a lying prince of Firemoon. You can imagine how well that's going to go over. Or he can do the smart thing. Well, I apologize, your highness. I'm sure it was just a misunderstanding. Yarley probably just made a mistake, and I apologize for any inconvenience this could be. Kingdom of Firemoon has always been a wonderful neighbor to the north, and on the rare occasions we've got to meet with any of their populace, have always been wonderful guests to our town. A pleasure to have you, and I apologize for any inconvenience my son or, or anything that's happened here may have caused for you, right? Please don't have your king kill us. That's the, the kind of look without this last sentence. That was in his head, but that's kind of the feel, right? So, at that point, Brogan comes up and says, uh, Your Highness? Yes, my good dwarf. Uh, the, your horse is, is done, if you'd like to check. Yes, one moment, if you would. And Deacon walks off to look at the horse. Just walks away like there's no threat. And Jacob's like, okay. And he's looking at Seraph, who's just leaning against uh, the fence, just casually. And, and Mugen, who's standing there, doing his best to look casual. Which, of course, means he looks absolutely not casual. Mugen, that's casual. He's very statuous and eyes open, but he already looks wild, so they don't know if that's just what he normally looks like. Mugen's a silly guy. Like so by the... Uh, <laughs> Deacon comes back over at this point. He goes, I must say, the work this young dwarf did was phenomenal, as well as I could have received at home. What an asset to your town he is. I have to say, the work he's done, and, and, and as pleasant as he is, is more than made up for the situation. That your son has caused. So there's no hard feelings between. And you can see the, the, the mayor's like, oh, yeah, oh, I'm so happy to hear that, your highness. Yes, yes. He said, in fact, it's so much done that I'm sure that my father will want to come down himself and thank this young dwarf for all the phenomenal work he did for me today. And such a pleasant man. Pleasant businessman. What a price. Cut me hell of a deal. I'm sure my father will come down here. In fact, the town itself, where it's placed, could very easily be a very convenient route for our soldiers and our nobles when traveling back and forth, even our merchants back and forth between our jewel. Yes, I could see that uh, making use of your town as a, a place to stay and maybe even do business on way would uh, could be very, very uh, beneficial to both of us. Now the mayor's like, oh, yes, of course, we would be honored to have your father and his men at any time. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that he'll send men down to thank this fine dwarf and to check on him from time to time. Make sure that he's doing well. And Deacon's face just goes straight. And to make sure that he's doing well. And... The mayor immediately gets the message. I can assure you this fine dwarf will be treated only the best. What a great representative of our fine town. 
uh, pleasure to have him as well. And I guarantee you, <laughs> he'll be in uh, great shape and you'll be happy to see him anytime you and your people come through. He goes, excellent. You'll be sure to do that. So in this manner, not only has he said, hey, our business might be coming through here, but my father, the king, and lots of his soldiers will be coming through and they're not going to like it if this dwarf has been managed. Is really the implication he's come off with there. The mayor got that. It's the boon for us. This could help us. My son needs to leave this kid alone. The dwarf. Because he's a young dwarf. Probably should have stressed that. Not a kid, but, you know, he's a young dwarf. Probably barely 150. So, the mayor, of course, is, uh, makes sure he's bothered no more. And then, uh, Deacon, of course, thanks the mayor, and the mayor leaves with his son. And as they're walking away, and he's talking to his son, he's, but dad, just see the mayor cuff his son, because he's smaller than his, his son, cuffs him across the back of the head and just berating them as they're going up the road. Now, Jacob smiles and looks at Deacon and says, thank you very much, Your Highness. I believe you've uh, successfully helped dissolve what could have been a very tough situation, and I do appreciate that. Deacon's like, you know, at this point, Deacon kind of, you know, gets a little out of his stuff. He goes, not a problem at all. I'm sure that, uh, you know, hopefully this will be a learning opportunity. Um, he's like, of course. Of course. I mean, will you be staying in town? No, no. Our business takes us uh, south to our duel immediately. So now that the horse is shoot, we'll be on our way. This is quite a distance from Arduel. And he's just asking a curiosity. He doesn't come across smarmy or nosy. Quite a distance from Arduel. I have to say, what brings you down here? And to be honest, Your Highness, for your own safety, I would assume you'd have more guards with you. Not that these men aren't capable, clearly, but still, for your own safety. Sarah steps up and goes, actually, sorry, we're, we're looking for someone uh, who may have passed through here recently on their way to Arduel. Maybe you've seen them. And Seraph goes on to describe Dina and her family. Now, Seraph has visited several times, and Deacon has seen her multiple times, so both of them are quite familiar with Dina and her family. And so they're able to describe them quite easily. Mugen has met them the one time, and so he would be like, yeah, that's what they look like. But Seraph has known them for several years at this point and visited several times and got to spend time with them, probably ate dinner at their home, if you know, you know that type of thing. So he knows them somewhat. So while they're... He begins to explain this person, this person, and then a young woman named Dina. Jacob hears a small cough, like a... <coughs> oh, from behind him, and he looks back, but his men are just kind of all standing. His men are standing there with ten guards. Please continue. Yes, so we're looking for them. And he's like, no, I have to apologize. No one who's match, matches anything like that has come through our town, at least not in the last few months that I, I've seen. And most travelers through... I know, it's not possible they could impossible they could have come through and I didn't see them, but it's it's not common. Um, I apologize. I wish I could be more helpful. And Deacon's like, no, 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 that's perfectly fine. We appreciate your help and we appreciate your uh, understanding in this situation. Jacob goes, understanding. I'll be honest. This is one of the mo this is probably one of the most fun fun days I've had in a while. He laughs and he shakes Deacon and Seraph and then little Moog's hand. Moogan, keep calling him Moog. I mean, see Moogan. Mugen's hand, and then uh, the three young guys hop on their horse and continue on south. Jacob just kind of stands there and watches them go for a few minutes, and he just kind of chuckles at uh, how easily in the back of his mind he can see how he can use this, right? Uh, Derek starts getting bothering someone else. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, person. You know, I'd, I'd hate for the king of Firemoon or his son to, to hear that person had been accosted. You know, Derek, like, 
But no, I mean, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean anything by it. Okay, good. Just check. Can you imagine? In his mind, this is a way he might be able to start keeping that man a little bit in check. Or better, best case scenario, get him to leave town. So Jacob finally turns and gets his man. All right, guys, let's go back to that. Let's go back to the village. So again, they're just on the outskirts of the village. They go start walking up to the village, and he starts looking, starts counting. He's like, nine. Nine. Why is there only nine? He says to himself, where's Olfen? One of the other guys goes, what's that? Where's Olfen, the new guy? Uh, he, he was here a moment ago, sir. I, I didn't see him leave. Oh. Yeah. Must have just headed back early. Probably back at town. Well, let's head on back. Olfen was a, a new member of the guard who had just joined up a few weeks ago. Quiet man. Uh, stayed to himself, but very skilled with his sword. Not very talkative. Uh, but always did a good job. Broke up fights and such when needed to be done. Friendly with the populace, though he didn't talk much. Always had that look like he was looking for something. Uh, though, you know, some people are just weird like that. Oh, well. Probably nothing. Jacob heads off back towards the town. The three men continue their voyage travels southeast and it's not long before they're back on the trail of using the little hairpin, hair clip. Um, and from there on to argue well, they run into no other trouble. They're able to make very good time. But as Deacon had warned, the tracing spell did grow weaker and weaker. And within a half a day of the city, it just stopped showing anything at all. Now, but that doesn't mean the clip stopped working. Deacon hides it back in one of his little pouches, or, or Seraph does. One of the little pouches it was given to Seraph. Um, where he can use it if they get back out of the city again, because it could still work that way. Um, but in the city, it's not going to be much use for him. Plus, you can imagine the city itself of Arduel is a coastal city. Remember that. It's on the southern coast. And it has the largest navy, or did have the largest navy. Paxwell is definitely packed on the ships. Paxwell is the biggest city overall outside of Centriel. Kingdom over well. Or Monolith, don't talk much. LOL, Michael says. <laughs> well, uh, sees this. You know, it's a coastal city. Um, so, But they were always on a coast, where Apaxawal wasn't. So they had sea business already going. And they're the number one traders with Darstopia. And they're the closest trader with Corman, the Dwarven Kingdom at this point. And now, literally within the last few weeks... They've become open trading partners with Santriel. So um, the city itself is a good-sized city, and it's grown a lot over the last 20 years. Um, very much so from all these connections. It's definitely rivaling in size of Serenity at this point. Serenity's still a bit bigger. Uh, Serenity grew big. Serenity's land that they claim as Serenity is the size of Pax Walls almost. All of them are smaller than Orn. But kingdom-wise, Serenity's still a little bit bigger than the actual city. Ormon has grown outside of its walls. You know, it's got a castle walls and such, and there was a big wall around the city. Well, now there's buildings such around the city, somewhat, not a lot, but there's still some buildings out, and smaller villages literally within 30 minutes to an hour's distance of the uh, kingdom itself, right? Very Larger populations, you know, they're dealing with all these other crafts and so on and so forth that they're selling in the city. So it's become a big trading hub. It's smack dab in the middle of Paxawal, Darstopia, Santriel, and Corman. Puts them in a really good position. I do like to dip into the 
political side of things once in a while, because sometimes that can matter in the future. So they managed to make their way into the city. And by the time they get there, it's about midday. Um, they have no issues getting inside the city. Right? Um, but as they're about to go in the city, Deacon apologizes that the clip isn't helping. I'm sorry the spell doesn't help more. And Sarah just smiles, puts his hand on Deacon's shoulder. He goes, you don't understand. I'm ecstatic. And Deacon's like, what do you mean? He goes, it means she made it to the city. It just stopped where people started showing up. She made it to population. They made it to other people. And they're going to be safer here than they are out in the middle of nowhere. King Christopher is a very good man and a great king. And he is known for being benevolent and taking care of his people. Not a lot of troubles. and I mean, there's always crime, right? There's, there's a, I'm sure there's a thieves guild here. But overall, the city is known to be peaceful and, and, and pretty tame. So they made it here. That's a good thing. So they head on into the city, get through the city gates without any problem. You know, they're questioned like normal. Any problems? What's your business here? They don't. At this point, Deacon's changed out of his clothes. They're back into their anonymous clothes, his anonymous clothes again. Because they don't want to advertise that he's a prince. Why draw that kind of problem, right? So they, they he's dressed back in his regular civvies, which are still kind of nice. He dresses nicely. Uh, but they enter the city, and then they immediately begin by going down to the docks. They know that Dina's letter said that he was coming to the city, that they were supposed to be getting a ship and heading to the east. Now, Sarah's biggest fear at this point that they've already left. She feels much, he feels much better. You know, granted, it was a half a day away when the clip stopped working, but that's because there was lots of villages and towns and roads. By that point, they would have ended up on a road. It's getting close here. There's lots of people moving up and down the road throughout the day. It'd been safety in numbers. You know, if a bunch of people attacked him in the middle of here, guards and so on, they would have asked if there were any trouble of that nature. No, no problems like that. That would have been something well known, you know? Most human trafficking happens in a city. Very accurate, Tyler. And non-human trafficking. <laughs> Sorry, humorous statement. So, <laughs> so they get down to the docks first, because if she's already left by ship, that's going to make things a little bit harder. But let's start there. So they go down there, and they spend the rest of the day going from ship to ship, hitting some of the in bars and such. It's a big port town, talking to some of the people who work the docks. Hey, have you seen anyone who looks like this? Young woman. Would have been traveling with two men, an older man or uncle, or grandma and grandpa who were looking pretty old. You know, this is this is what the family looks like. Anything like this. Don't know what they're dressed like, because we're assuming they would have changed stuff, but this is what they look like. And spend half a day searching and only get a chunk of the actual dock done by that point, but without any success. So they find an inn relatively nearby. Because they want to be close to the docks where they can keep an eye on it and the next day continue on. They find a medium-range inn. So they're not in like a you know scum hole or anything like that. But they're not in the finest inn either. They're not trying to draw that kind of attention. Mugen and Seraph are already going to draw some attention. Especially Mugen. And so... They, stand, they decide to get one room. They're able to get a room that's got two beds. It's enough for the three of them to crash out, you know, three, two decent sized beds. And they feel being in the situation and with all the danger out there for them, 
be safer if they were in one room for themselves. On top of that, helps them save money because they don't know now if they're going to need to get a ship voyage. They might. They spend the night and they go down and they manage to get themselves some good food, good drink. It's the first hot meal that's not been cooked over a regular stove in weeks at this point. First time they've had any real alcohol. Which they're all about that. They get some beds, a hot meal, and they get maybe a bath or whatever, and they're able to get a good night's sleep for the first time, as much as they possibly can. Seraph, of course, spends most of the evening meditating, resting, and wishing he was out there searching. They enjoy, uh, you know, the, 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 the town is boisterous, and so the, the inn was as well. No problems at all. So the next day, they, get, they decide to split up their party a little bit. Mugen is going to stay with Seraph, because Seraph's in the best position to take care of him. Could there be an issue? Um, uh, Deacon uh, is also going to kind of split up. He's going to go off and do a couple different things. So Seraph and Mugen are going to continue down on the docks, asking for anyone and hitting any of the small inns and bars and such that would be near the docks where you're normally going to find uh, and see if they can find any sign of Dina and her family. Um, the first thing that Deacon, that's Seraph and, and, and Mugen, I'm sorry. Deacon is going to hit the Mage Tower. There's a Mage Tower in Arjuel now. And while he will have to say who he really is once he gets there, the request for discretion from a mage will be honored by the mages. There's no reason why they shouldn't. Um, doesn't matter whether they're loyal to Arduel or Serenity, they're loyal to each other before anyone else. That's how mages roll. So he makes his way there to see if they've heard anything. Maybe they've known of any problems, says this young woman who's traveling through, maybe being chased by somebody. Remember, they don't know it's Oromon yet. They left. They don't know it's Oromon chasing her. They just know she's being chased by somebody. So he goes out to the Mage Tower to see if they know of anything that's happened in this area or anything like that. Um, and then when he's done, he's going to check some of the more in-the-city inns away from the docks, the places maybe they wouldn't want to stay right near the docks. And they hit some of the... He's hitting some of the horror kind of areas as well, uh, dropping a coin here or there in the hands of people who uh, normally keep their eyes out for things outside of the normal. You know what I mean? Find a couple young kids who appear to be just sitting there for no reason who probably work for a thieves' guild. Nobody crosses up that street that they're not making a mental note of because they report that stuff. So, hey, here's a coin. You see anybody that looks like this? No. Here's another coin. Now, have you seen anybody that looks like this? You know, um, things of that nature. Which, uh, Deacon being human, might be a little bit easier to do that than people who look a little bit more strange like Seraph. So they spend their whole day searching the city for any sign that they can find of Nina. Um, and they meet back at their hotel that evening, uh, only to report no success. At this point, no one has seen a, there's been nothing, not a glimpse of anyone who's seen anything like that. Uh, no one matching Dina or even her individual family. Uh, of course, they don't know the names Kurgan and Perrin. That was in the letter, but it means nothing to them. Seraph might remember it, say, oh, hey, you met Kurgan, Perrin, those names ring a bell? I think she said that's what her uncle and... Grandpa were calling each other? No, doesn't mean anything to you guys? Okay. She wouldn't say Kurgan the Grey. Remember, it was Mercy who put that together when she read the, the letter. So they only have bits of pieces that they're going off of this. And he only knows Kurgan and Perrin by the name he's always known. Um, so, question around, they've had absolutely no luck. 
And they get back to the end, and they're all a little bummed out by this. They hoped they would catch her here. They catch up to her and such. But their fear is at this point that somehow they did get on the ship and leave. If they were here for any period of time, somebody would have had to have seen them. Granted, it's a big city with a lot of people coming in and out, but you think somebody would see some kind of sign. Um, now, of course, it's also possible that if they already had a ship lined up, which it sounded like they did, it was a ship that was hired from outside of here. There may not be anybody from that ship to be, yeah, we took them on. They may have loaded on at night to hide themselves. They were in hiding. So maybe they loaded at night and hid somewhere in the city until then. And they didn't stay in an inn. It's possible they may have just snuck through. But that makes it much, much harder on them. So while they're eating and drinking and chatting about their day and such, the room is full music. There's probably a bard, people dancing and chatting and laughing. It's a very, it's a popular inn, very busy. Um, Seraph, always the observant one he is, very quickly notices the man watching them from across the... Now he doesn't draw any attention to it. He's eating and such and just talking and such. And in the middle of sentences, oh, yeah, yeah, I looked at this inn and so on and so forth. And there's a man across the room staring at us. And there wasn't anything at the dock. And Deacon's like, okay, gotcha. And Mugen's like... Uh, <laughs> Deacon's like, okay, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I see him over there. But yeah, you know, we looked over here, just throwing the words in. Mugen's like, I know I'm not good with words, but I'm very confused. <laughs> you know, and they're like, it's okay, Mugen. No, uh, it's okay. You're fine. We're just just having a chat here. I apologize. <laughs> they continue their talking. They keep an eye on it, the guy, and the guy just drinking, sitting in a corner by himself, but clearly looking at them. They decide they're going to go back to the room. They don't want to go over there and spook him. Someone's watching them for a reason. Granted, they look weird. But in a city like this, it's going to be a big mix of races, right? It's an ocean port, too. So there's probably <clears throat> St. Trial being open. There's elves, there's dwarves, halflings running around in the place. Minotaur, all over this place. Minotaur have been trading with Arduel for a while now. So there's going to be Minotaur walking all over the place. Plus all sorts of weird creatures from across the world that you don't normally see place like this is more used to seeing odd-looking people come in. You know what I mean? A ship pulls up full of badger dwarf people that have the ability to turn into a mermaid or something. These guys show up and they're like, you are a weird group of people. But hey, are you here to buy things? You know, you can imagine that. Don't, though, because that's weird. I wouldn't add the mermaid thing to the badger dwarfs. The badger dwarfs are cool enough as it is. So, <laughs> sorry. So, just saying in general. Not going to ruin it with the mermaid. But as an example, weird stuff popping up, that can happen. So they make their way up to their room. And once they're out of sight, they hurry to the room pretty quickly. They're very lucky. Their room overlooks an alley. So it's, well, the window is nailed shut. That's not much for Seraph to very easily force the window open. And they very quickly climb outside and down the outside of the building. By they, I mean Seraph carrying them. This has happened before. It's later in the evening at this point. They'd stayed in the inn for a while, let it start to wind down a little bit. And as soon as they get out there, they kind of get to the end of the alley where they can watch the front of the place. And they stay there for probably a good hour. It's getting later in the evening and there's less and less people on the street before finally the man that was watching them comes out. The man himself is dressed in common man's leathers. Regular clothes, has an apron on. Maybe he's a cook or some of a smithy of some kind. Um... He looks like he'd just be a regular Joe standing in the crowd. He's kind of balding on top, probably in his early to mid-40s. Uh, he is in good shape. He doesn't have a you know, 
belly or anything on him. He seems to be in good shape, uh, relatively muscular, uh, but he doesn't, you know, normally if you saw him in a crowd, there's nothing that would make him stand out. If they hadn't noticed him watching, he would have been blending in perfectly. So they finally see him leave and he's heading down the road and starts making his way towards almost the city gate. So they start following him. Now, they're quiet. I just roast turn roommates are now canon. <laughs> that makes me happy. Tyler says, Badger dwarves who turn into mermaids are now canon. You wait. You wait. Two years from now in our lives, I'm going to whip that character out. You guys will have forgot about it by that point. Suddenly, there'll be badger dwarves who can turn into mermaids. <laughs> Underwater miners. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> they start following him at a distance. Now, Seraph goes ahead of the other two. Mugen, very quiet, even for a gully. They know this about him. They've already seen how sneaky he can be when they were sneaking out of Serenity. Again, trained by Fig to survive where others can't. Gullies normally couldn't make it. So he's very quiet, but he is still a little bit slower because of his shorter legs. So Seraph stays a bit ahead, but enough so that Deacon can keep an eye on him. Deacon can pretty much always find Seraph. It's just kind of a connection the two of them have. But finally, they get to an, the man takes off on a side road. Seraph waves ahead, and the other ones come rushing up, and they follow him as a group at this point. They're following him, and they're hiding and such, and occasionally the man stops and looks around to see if he's being followed, but they appear to be doing a good job. He doesn't give anything off that would say imply that he's seen them. He doesn't rush off or look startled. He looks like just very casual and continues. And he makes his way towards, literally, a wall of the city. Buildings are very often built up against the city walls, um, and in this situation, is the same. There's a small space or alley between two old houses that he tucks into. Now, Seraph leaves the other two behind and literally climbs up a building up onto the roof where he can look down the alley. And with, even though it's nighttime and there's some light, his vision is very good. He's Seraph, that's how. And he sees the man approach the wall. He can only kind of see the silhouette of the man in the, in the alley with the light and the dark and the moon and all that. And he's watching and he sees the man go up to the wall and then he sees the wall open. The man disappears inside and the wall closes behind him. He waits a minute to see if anything else happens. Nothing does. He climbs down and reports to Deacon and Mugen. They decide to continue following the man. So they make their way up around the two buildings. They appear to be residences. They're not business. And this section of the town is pretty much asleep for the night. Once in a while a guard might walk around, but they're careful to avoid anybody. They get up to the alley and they sneak inside. The alley is very well dark and hidden. The buildings are close enough that there's only about five or six feet between the two of them. Uh, so they kind of have to walk single file. And when they get up to the wall, it doesn't take Seraph but a moment to find the hidden door. Uh, definitely, it's well hidden, but with his eyes and such, and then Deacon uses his magic, and Deacon's very very uh, quickly able to find the brick opening thing, like push a brick, whatever the case is, that opens the door. The mechanism, I will say. The mechanism isn't important, so we're just going to say there's a mechanism. The man just opened the mechanism, and sure enough, part of the door clicks, and it kind of opens like a door. They wait a minute. Seraph draws his sword, goes inside, sees that inside it's completely dark. But all two of these guys have infravision. Deacon does not. Seraph goes in and checks, and inside it's dry, and it appears to be a tunnel that's been tunneled into the wall itself. It's narrow, but they can he can walk without his shoulders, you know, being too cramped. 
Sometimes he may have to go sideways, but someone is literally hollowed through the wall itself. Deacon comes in and basically is holding on to the back of Seraph with Mugen in the back. Mugen can see very well in the dark, and he's looking behind. That's not a magical ability, a physical ability. Just saying. Mugen's able to look backwards and keeping an eye out, and Mugen has plenty of room for him, so they make their way forward. They travel for a ways until it ends. Literally, it's a stop. They start looking around, and it takes them a moment or so to find the hidden mechanism on the opposite side. And when they do that and open it, they find that they're literally outside the city. Again, in between a couple of buildings. They quietly make their way out and close that door, coming out the alleyway to look around and see what they can see. Um, let me find where I am. Edge uh, of the city. Okay. So at first, they see no sign of the man that they were looking for. And they were a little bit behind, so now there's some concern they may have lost him. But Seraph quickly rushes to the edge of the alley and looks, and he decides to go up onto the, onto the roofs again, because it's nothing for him to scale a building. Him and his dad are always doing that. So Spider-Man's his way up there, and he's looking around, and in the distance, there's only several buildings up against the wall. There's always some tents and such around here. But it's not like a big, big town on this side of the wall. Just a couple of buildings built against it, so on and so forth. And you can see... A path down the ways where it looks like he can see someone, roughly looking like the man, making his way down a path to what appears to be an old set of ruins just outside the city. Now, this is in the northeastern section of the city. Remember, they came from the south. They were going southeast, which means they would have come in from the northwest. Okay, follow me on this. It's backwards, but follow me. So they're going northeast, which is towards Santrial. These ruins are off in the distance. He doesn't know anything about them. They didn't really see them on their way in, but this person is clearly making their way in that direction. But it climbs back down, and he, Deacon, and Mugen do their best to try to catch up. So, let's see. Okay. So as they're, they're making their way down the ruins, they haven't seen the man since they got back down. They assume he's already in there. They quickly make their way down the path. Now, they've got to be careful here because there's nothing hiding them. It's just a path down an open set of land down to what appears to be an old ruin with a few trees growing out of it. You know, it's, it's an unkept ruins. It almost looks, it's not, but it looks like bones sticking out of a forest, if you will. It's just what was old white stone. And they make their way down towards there. As they get close, they start to come across some of the smaller pieces of ruins, and it's made of a very white stone. Looks very old, looks very quartz-like. Although, a quick tap lets you know it's even sturdier. It's almost metallic when you click it, uh, when, you, when you tap it. Um, but it has clearly been tumbled for a while, and there's lots of plants and stuff growing over it, but nothing's growing through it, and that's important. In old ruins, normally plants will find little cracks, grow through them, and start to split rocks and such. And even though there's mold and stuff growing on the outside, you could take their hand and wipe it off. Nothing's getting in the stone. The stone is very, very sturdy and doesn't appear to, even though it looks old and dirty and grimy, if you wipe it off, it looks like it'd be as clear as it was the day it was put in there. And it looks very, very old. Deacon's very intrigued because he didn't know these ruins were here. And they're not small. It's almost the size of like a small temple or small building. And that's kind of what he thinks with it being the color it is, that it might be some type of old small temple. Now, there is some overgrowth. Like I said, even though the stone's fine, there's lots of plants and stuff. There's a couple paths walking through, so it looks like the ground's not against the rules. You know what I mean? There's nothing implying that you shouldn't be able to go through here. People clearly do. And there are some paths and trails through here um, where people may come through and just be looking at it. You know, maybe even a bench here and there. 
almost like it's a little park uh, where these this stuff is allowed to be. And they make their way inside. And they're trying to go very, very slowly and quietly because they know the man's maybe up here. He may have come up the other side of it at this point, but they don't know. And he may be hiding in there and they're trying to be careful. They're going slow. And Seraph is actively listening. And thankfully he does. Because as they're walking forward, he just quickly enough manages to grab Deacon and pull him aside as the weapon flies right through where Deacon was standing. And then men start to appear. Not like dancing or anything. <laughs> but no. Suddenly, out of the trees, people come. Now, Seraph didn't know these men were there. Very quiet. Very sneaky. They're all dressed in black. Ten of them appear to be coming out of the woods in all directions. Now, they may have never seen them before, but Seraph and Deacon both could not have grown up in Serenity without knowing damn well what an Oromanian elite looks like. And there's no doubt to either of them that's what's popping out of the trees at this point. Weapons are immediately out, and as soon as they draw their weapons, Mugen draws his. He's like, okay, what's this? Because people are coming at him, and immediately combat begins. Really, there's no talking, there's no chittering. Immediately, the ten begin attacking. The three of them do their best to stay close as they can back to back, keep the ten who are surrounding them at this point at bay. Um, they're well-trained, but then so are Deacon and Seraph. And Deacon and Seraph, much like the elites who always come in pairs, they've trained for years to work together. And so that gives them one edge. Most of the time when elites fight people, they aren't that well trained to work in twos. Second edge they have is that Deacon also gets to use magic. So he is mixing magic with combat. And if you'll remember, Ormon doesn't like magic. Okay, with priest magic, don't like wizards. And that's always what's helped Serenity against them is their access to wizards and the magic they can bring that Ormond does not have a lot of defense against. So Deacon, knowing this and being able to add spells to, their, to the combat, helps them as well. The third thing, oddly enough, that's beneficial is Mugen. Ormanian leans are trained to fight. Trained to fight very, very well and as a team against all sorts of things. But not people that small. Why would they? Why would you train to fight gully dwarves. Maybe even gnomes. But this isn't an issue that Ormond normally has to deal with. It's humans that they almost always have to fight. And in their war here, even over the last 20 years, it's been humans and Minotaur that have been their issues. Right? Serenity, there's a Kender in there, but they're not going to trade everybody to fight one Kender. Mercy and Artemis are both a little short, but they're still relatively human. Right? Oh, long trip to make with... Oh, you're fine, Tyler. <laughs> you're fine. So the Armenian elites are coming in at them. But we got Seraph, super fast, trained to fight with Deacon, who has magic. And then Mugen, who's small and quick. And he's moving very quickly in and amongst the legs of Seraph and Deacon, staying out of the way. Right? He's able to move with that, and he's got his hammer, which, to be honest... Even though Deacon and Seraph have very high quality weapons, that hammer is stronger than any magic item any of them are carrying right now. 
And when that hammer hits a person, it does a bunch of damage. It's like, I want to say it was a plus four hammer. And I remember correctly, it was a hammer of thunder, which means on a natural 20, it basically always does double damage, plus you get to roll for your critical hit, which means you could do double or triple damage, your double damage. Um, because you're literally unleashing a thunder. There are charges, and it needs to be charged, and that was the th that was that was his his hammer at the end. But inside New Gully, it's just a good hammer. Mugen would have been told the command word for that, but it's not really command word. It works. It's not a, I want to use this. It just can happen when rolling a twenty for the combat base. So it's not something he has to say. I activate the hammer of thunder. It'd be literally a oh wow I hit that man he went flying. So something like that. Oh, I hit him harder than I thought, you know? Which Mugen would probably be a little bit surprised for. Because when he, when that does trigger off, there's like a sound like thunder that comes from him. He'd be like, ooh, that was loud. You know, it's, it's going to catch him off guard the first couple times it happens. But they're doing well. Even against the ten. The battle has moved down a path to the point that there's a clearing. And they're almost in a, a, a good-sized round clearing. They've made their way to where it'd be a bit more defensible. But the Ormanelites have stayed around them. No matter where they've gone, they've not been able to do that. And they have managed to take a couple out. Now, all of this has happened within just the first one to two minutes. Combat is fast. And Seraph, Deke, and Mugen have all taken at least one hit already. Elites are challenged. But they've already taken two elites down. Right? Seraph, whoever's attacking them may not know what Seraph's capabilities are. Definitely that Deacon has magic. So they've managed to take two of the elites down so far, leaving only eight. It's about that time that Mugen calls out, Seraph, these are the Manzas chasing Dina. This Mugen knows that. He recognizes them. This is how the guys were dressed. The 40 of them that he and his friends had to, Mugen and Figgy and all the gullies had to take out that were chasing Dina originally. They just know they're being attacked by Oromanian elites. But once Mugen says that, Seraph is angry. Now, in his mind right now, he's thinking about combat. He's thinking about defending and protecting his friends while eliminating a threat. A threat that now is the threat against the woman he loves and the reason he can't find her. And so, he starts fighting harder. Now, I don't want to say that Seraph holds back, right? It's not even a conscious thing for Seraph. But Seraph is always going to be, and if you've ever had a younger sibling, you might relate to this. You can't be rough. You're bigger than them. You're going to hurt them by accident. He's always going to be told that growing up. You have to be careful. You just may meant to playfully push someone and you could send them flying 5e feet in the air. You have to be careful. And a lot of people who are raised that way just have that natural, I don't want to hurt people. Plus, he was raised where his mom was a high cleric of life. Respect life, and not the taking of life unless you have to. There's going to be that side of the restraint as well. But that stuff gets washed away when he gets angry, and he has a focus for it. And that's kind of what happened when Deacon and Sarah first met in that alley and being picked on by a bully before. When he finally lets that rage hit him, he lets go in some ways. Now, good side, bad side. Some of the coordinated partnership attacks that he and De Deacon have trained with for years can be a little more abandoned when he just starts going hot crazy. But at the same time, 
he'll do more damage, but also take more damage. Because he's not going to feel that. He may get stabbed in the side, he's not going to feel that as much. Because he's in that enraged state. His blood is boiling, that means something very different than a regular person. So Seraph starts lashing out. And, sure enough, he takes a couple hits, but within just a couple moments, two more elites hit the ground, and another one falls seriously injured. That's half of them at this point. The remaining elites are all pretty much on one side. They're not spacing out at this point. They're trying to come as a wall of force because clearly being surrounding was not helping. They've basically kind of come together and they're coming as kind of like a, a, a half moon. One side. Which definitely helps the friends out. Now they don't have to watch all their back. They're in combat. Still fighting. Elites packed in are making it a little bit harder to, to attack at them. When about that time, the words of a spell are unleashed. And a wave of energy comes right at them. And they, and the elites past them, are sent well off their feet, hitting the ground. Everyone, the elites and Seraph and Deacon, hop up quickly to see what this new threat is. Coming out of the woods from the side where there weren't the elites, they can now see someone dressed all in cleric's robes wearing the symbol of Pandora. This is not uncommon for this be a man who's a you know, cleric, you know what I mean? Pandora. It's, they're hand in hand here. Would cast the spell. Deacon and Seraph now have a little bit more to deal with. But they have the pleasant surprise to see that Moog wasn't knocked over. Very short. I'm a human, I'm throwing a spell out, I'm probably targeting the height of where everybody is. Probably went right over Moogan's head, is what you could, they assume, right? But that means they were thrown several feet, not five or ten feet. They're all up now, and now they're fighting the elites again. But Mugen's still standing over there where he was. And Mugen turns to look at this new guy in the robes. Cleric's not something he knows a lot about. What little he's learned from them and meeting Artemis and seeing the temple. He doesn't, he, he knows the gods. Fig would have taught them that. He probably knows the same. He's like, Pandora, Pandora, I remember that, Pandora. Word's not as strong. Which one is that? Which one is, and he's sitting there and he's like, do I help them? Or do, what do I... Why does person send my everybody go fly in the air? Mugen's a little confused about what he should do. And then, Cleric reaches into his belt and pulls out a wand and points it at Mugen and says the command word. Five bolts of magical energy come flying out, swirling and directly to their target. Wand of magic missiles. Streaks of different colored light flying through the air. Seraph and Deacon want to help him, but they're stuck in melee. Even if Seraph was to break off, he's leaving Deacon with five elites, and that's more than Deacon. And these things go and squarely hit Mugen straight in the chest. Now, they're behind. Mugen, they're, they're behind. They're looking at Mugen's back. And they just see, and he kind of stumbles back a bit as it hits him square in the chest. All five magic missiles. That's powerful. Powerful one. And Mugen stumbles back a bit and he looks down at his chest. And he looks up at the, at the cleric 
And you can imagine they're behind him and they're screaming out like, no, kind of thing, right? And Mugen goes, why are you throwing pretty colors at me? Hey, Deacon, why is this man throwing pretty colors at me? And he turns and they can see his chest is unharmed. Why is he throwing pretty colors at me? And Deacon yells, it's a spell. He's trying to hurt you. Moon goes, what? Well, no, that's not nice. Takes his hammer and starts walking towards the cleric. The cleric, surprised, begins casting another spell. And this time, a bolt of electricity fires out. Strikes Mugen again. Mugen looks down and goes, Stop that! That pinched me! And starts walking forward faster. Cleric is completely confused at this point. Grabs another wand, and this time, in front of him, again, the force goes out. Same type of force that sent everybody flying, but targets straight at Mugen. And Mugen slows down for a minute, and he's, but he's still walking. He's just going a little bit slow. Almost like he's just walking through water. His, his little hair is kind of woofing back from it. He's got this look on his face like he's really irritated at the inconvenience. Cleric stumbling in his belt to pull something out. He, they hear him yell, Die, you little bastard! Mugen says, I know, bastard. I'm Mugen. And quickly, Mugen's hand reaches down into his belt and pulls the weapon from the scabbard that's there. Now, you could say it's a scabbard. Not exactly. Deacon and Seraph had seen this weapon many, many times. Mugen cleans it at least two to three times a day. Cleans it, oils it, keeps it dry no matter what's going on, no matter what rains. Fills it up with some weird materials that he explains to them how it works. Deacon was very intrigued, Seraph not as much, but they'd never seen him use it. Incredibly fast, he draws the weapon out and points it at the cleric. And then there's a loud cracking noise. Lightning strike. The back of the cleric's head explodes open as the ball of steel punctures and goes straight through its skull. The head nearly exploding from the force. Mugen's only five or six feet away. And the body literally, with the force of it, falls backwards several feet before hitting the ground, smoke rising from what used to be a face. They hear, murmur, they hear Mugen murmur. Now, the other elites have stopped fighting. They've stepped back a moment. They've never seen anything like that. What does that do? What kind of spell did this little man have? That hesitation. Did he wiggling back? <laughs> that hesitation is all that they needed. Doubling their attack and releasing a spell of his own, they managed to fell two more of the elites simultaneously. The remaining three continue to press the attack because there's one thing elites don't do. Elites don't ever give up. Another moment or two of fighting, the remaining elites are on the ground as well. Seraph and Deacon, multiple injuries. Seraph is checking the dead to make sure, you know, they're all dead and not faking. Deacon rushes over to Mugen, who's still kind of standing there looking down at the body of the cleric. Mugen leans down and starts checking him for injuries. Front of his mohawk's a little singed in one spot. Mugen, once he learns about this, very unhappy. 
not easy to keep hair like that. But there's not a single wound on his chest. If anything, there's blackened ash or soot, like where the, the lightning hit him. But his skin is unmarred. If anything, it's a little pink or red. Like suntanned or sunburned there. It's a little sensitive to the touch. He's like, felt like it pinched me. Deacon's just completely confused. By more than one thing. Seraphim steps over. Deacon goes, he's perfectly fine. Seraph's like, how can that be? He goes, I don't know. The other issue is that cleric casted wizard spells. And he's using magical items meant for wizards. Shouldn't be able to do that. Seraph was about to ask, what does this mean? When all around them out of the woods, more men enter into this little clearing. Now there's about 23 of them, all well-armed. Several of them with crossbows and bows. Far too many for our friends to be able to defend against them. A man kind of pushes his way through a little bit or walks in. And they recognize it was the man from the inn. He's dressed like them now, more in like a, a grayish color clothing, um, some leather armor. They're wearing basic leather armor, but nothing heavy. Walks in and he goes, How did you do this? Seraph begins walking towards the man. More weapons and swords come out. Seraph stops halfway there. Man himself has his sword out pointing towards Seraph. He's like, Why did they attack you? Seraph's like, To be honest, I don't know. I'm more, I'm more concerned with why you were following us. I'd like to know why they all have their weapons out. I'd like to know where the hell Dina is. Man's eyes go wide for a moment, and Seraph had done exactly what he hoped for. By throwing that out really quick, he got the reaction. The man's eyes go wide. He goes, you know where Dina is. He now knows he knows who Dina is. At least he knows something. He knows Dina's existence and knew Dina's name. He recognized it. Just the quick throw out of words was enough to get the quick look on his face. And the man realizes this. Kind of smiles, and he goes, Ten Oromanian elites. Not a small feat for... Any to try to defeat, but the two, three of you managed to pull that off. I'd be very interested to know how you did that. Seraph, Seraph says, I'm from the kingdom of Serenity. He's from the kingdom of Firemoon. He's from the kingdom of New Gelly, land far to the north. Everybody knows nobody knows who New Gully is. So they always say New Gully, a land far to the north. They don't have to say in the dead magic zone. We are looking for a young woman named Dina. Family. Being chased by men of this nature. Trying to get her. Trying, I'm trying to find her. The man's eyes get shriveled up. He goes, 
Seraph steps forward and he goes, I'm not trying to harm her. I'm trying to save her. My name is Seraph Bloodborne. Said I'm from the Kingdom of Serenity. Her and I have a relationship. I know that she's on the run, trying to find her. So we the man kind of scoffs. He goes, "There's one thing I've learned over these years is Oramon's lies. Very easily, that you could have killed these, only to find your way into our midst." I know who you say you are. I have no reason to. Seraph's eyes narrow. Deacon's eyes roll like. Seraph looks at her and he goes, I don't care who you are. I don't care who they are. And I don't care why Oramon. I'm going to find Dina, save her, bring her home where I can protect her. I don't care who or what stands between us. And instantaneously, Seraph is standing directly in front of the man, snatching the sword out of, the, out of his hand and throws it to the ground. With his other hand, lifts him in the air and he goes, and anything standing between us will very quickly find their death. Imagine all the other swords are out. There's swords of deacons and moogs necks and such. This guy's whole, like, he's shorter than, see, he, he's not like waving them up in the air, but he lifts them up to eye level. I'm cutting out? Okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll go louder. Apologize. Thank you. Lifts her straight up. Because anyone will, go, will very quickly find their death. And the man is looking at Seraph, and Seraph's looking at him, and the man chuckles. And then he just straight up laughs. Now, Seraph, that's not really the reaction that he expected. He's, as we talked about earlier, this is a situation where normally this would be intimidating. But the man's just chuckles. And that, my friends, the man says, how a man speaks when he's in love. Put down your weapons, boy. Men look nervous. He goes, go on. It's all right. All the men take their weapons back and sheath them. And put me down now. Seraph looks at the man and sets him down. You are bloodborne, aren't you? Yes. Must understand we had to be sure. Safety is paramount. You don't know why they're chasing her, do you? Seraph goes, as I said, doesn't matter. No one's going to hurt. He smiles. He goes, maybe so. Maybe so. Well, nothing else but to do then. Turns around. He goes, my name. I should write that thing. I've got to catch up my page here. My name is Wallace. You can come with me. We have a lot to talk about. Turns and start to walk out, walk towards the woods. And Seraph, Seraph calls out. Why? Why should we trust you? Well, stops and looks at Sarah and says, because she left a letter for you, son. 
And if you'd like it, you're going to have to come with me. Wallace walks off into the woods, through the trees, into the... Serv looks at Deacon and Mugen and... What's to do? They walk over, and the three men, the other guys following them, you know, kind of coming into like a line to herd them. They start walking into the woods as well, following after Wallace, and hopefully, another letter from Deacon. And that's where we're going to stop for today. So, friends, a little bit of an adventure. They just came across their first real battle with Oramon, which now they're aware that Oramon is a player. And I think we all have a good feeling they're about to learn a little bit more about why Oramon is a player here in the very, very near future. But who is Wallace? We are these strange men that seem to be very protective of Dina. In fact, so much so, she would trust them with a letter for him. We'll all find out in a future exciting episodes of Merge Worlds. Quentin Games says, cool hat. Thank you, Quentin. <laughs> I am the draven in the hat today, yes. This is, a, this is the hat I normally wear when I didn't have long hair. I stopped wearing it when I grew my hair out. Now that it's short again, I'm to wearing the hat all the time. I tried not wearing the hat a couple streams and immediately people told me I looked weird and need to put the hat back on. <laughs> so I'm okay with it. But that is where we left off. Who is Wallace? Oh, it's a, the most dramatic part and my phone starts to buffer. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, MT. Uh, hopefully you found today's adventure uh, interesting. Until the very end, there wasn't a whole lot of action, but I really wanted to kind of stress out how the three guys were becoming friends and the different roles that they were playing um, and what they brought to the table. And then when we got to the end, I got the pleasure of throwing out some uh, interesting potential surprises. MT mentioned Kevlar or immune to magic from being in the non-magic zone. Assuming you're talking about little Mugen right there. Well, I can tell you we will be talking about that for sure in the very near future episode. Um, and, uh, that's going to be a very interesting revelation that might help or hinder Mugen in the future. As for Wallace, I look forward to talking more about him and all of that kind of stuff. Happy 17K. Thank you very much, Quentin. That is correct. We had 17,000 subscribers here on uh, YouTube the other day. Uh, so thank you, everybody who's been supporting the channel and uh, clicking like on these streams. Can't tell you how much it helps when you do click like on these, even though it's a small thing. It does help. Even if it's 10 years down the road, clicking like and subscribing to the channel has a huge, huge beneficial effect on the channel. So uh, thank you very much for all your support and everyone who's been watching. Now, next Thursday, there will not be an episode. Normally next Thursday would be behind the dice. Uh, my wife and I have to go to Nashville, um, which is like a three-hour drive for her neurologist appointment. She has to see every six weeks. And we had to push this one off a couple of months. Uh, and it's not easy to get in. So normally we go early in the day so I can get back and it's not affected. We have to go in the early afternoon. So by the time I get back, I just won't have time to prepare for that. So next Thursday, there will not be an episode here on, you, on YouTube. Um, but uh, the following Thursday, we'll be right back with Merge Worlds again. So Merge Worlds not getting thrown off the schedule. We're just going to skip it behind the dice. MT makes a comment, no magic means no healing magic too. Oh, there's something to think about, isn't it? <laughs> Excellent. Hopefully, 
uh, you all enjoyed today's story. If you did, I'd love to hear about it. You can join our Discord channel. Links to that are on my website, onlydraven.com. Right at the top is a button you can click on, take you right in there. We'd love to have you. This is Merge World's Thread. I'd love to hear your comments, thoughts, feedbacks, and even uh, estimates of what's going to happen in the future. Uh, this is also recorded on iTunes and Spotify. If you're listening to it on that platform, thank you so very much for giving it a chance there as well as an audio podcast. Uh, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving it all the thumbs up or stars or whatever it is. And uh, if you can leave a review, that's awesome too. Uh, if you'd like to give that uh, a follow or subscription on iTunes or Spotify, that definitely helps out as well. Greatly appreciate it. And if you have anyone you think might know Mer enjoy Merge Worlds, point them towards here or the audio podcast. Always looking for new folks to share my story with. Okay? But I'm going to call that a day. I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful evening, a wonderful week. Um, I will be over on Twitch tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern uh, on my Twitch channel, Only Driven Gaming, all one word, Only Driven Gaming, one word, no space, no underscore. If you got a Twitch, come give us a follow. Hang out with us while we play some video games. All right? Thank you all once again for sharing my Merge World story. I appreciate every one of you.